I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is John Griffith, author and IT executive. His new book is A Dad's Fun Guide to Raising Happy Daughters, Imagination Activities Against Body-Snatching Zombie Naysayers and Other Foes of Happiness. John Griffith, a single parent of three daughters, recognizes that a father's impact upon his daughter is achieved through healthy and personal interactions. His guidance is a fatherhood story that's spiritual, jaw-dropping, inspirational, and emotionally charged. Using the powerful tools of metaphoric storytelling, introspective letters, and creative activities, John Griffith teaches both father and daughter the keys to remaining happy throughout life by embracing considered thought, emotion, and imagination. Uh, John is also a composer, a musician, and a guest author on a family law blog. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, John. Oh, it's a joy to be here. Thank you so much. Great to have you. Well, I'm the mother, and maybe you know this already, uh, if you listen to the show, but the mother of three sons and grandmother of three grandsons. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. Three daughters, it's a whole different realm for me. Uh, and I guess so the first question is, John, is why do we need a book for daughters specifically uh, about the secrets of happiness? And, uh, of course, the secrets of happiness given our, the context of the culture we live in now. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, I want to say that you know, our society is no different than the society 2,000 years ago. We, li- we live in a time when um, society just pulls us away from what we knew as little children, how we were born, kind of naturally uh, heat-seeking joy missiles. And, and then society coaxes us away from uh, believing in ourselves and finding that power within, and we displace that power and give it away. And I think particularly with, with girls, um, even more so, I, I was thinking this morning before we talked that, you know, when I first started down this road as a father of, of the first of my daughters, uh, when she was five, um, is, is when, when my single journey started. But, um, you know, I, I really began to see um, the prejudices in society towards girls in general, and I actually also towards fathers at that time, too, as, as single fathers. But with with girls, especially, um, it's more uh, the, the mentality was girls don't, or girls can't do these certain things, and with boys, it was boys uh, can but they don't, right? <laughs> so there was a, a really rough line for girls as they grew older, and I started to see that, and um, I started to believe, you know, uh, that that we need to we need to address that. In my case, I addressed it with girls um, because that, that's what I had. I had three three of those eventually. But, um, but really it applies to, to all children growing up. Um, social media is a great example of where, where your, your um, self-identity gets to be dis- or begins to be displaced and you throw out you know, who you are to external things like, like uh, social media and groups, popular groups, et cetera, what people should think about John, you. John, but specifically, and I'm going to stop you here because there are some, as you, as you just said um, a couple sentences ago, that uh, there are differences between our, the girls and the boys. And yes, each one is, fa- we have challenges for both of them, but girls have specific kinds of challenges. And then also, and I think you've mentioned this in the book, each one of your daughters has a unique personality, so that makes it different as well. But can you let's talk about like the specific challenges for to raise girls as ha- as happy hopefully growing up as happy women but but happy people and the, the the specific differences between that and let's say the challenges that boys face yeah like like i think i think there's just so much more demand or uh, limitations placed uh, upon girls specifically um, I think that, you know, we, we see that in um, kind of sexual messages. We see that in, in their roles um, as they grow up, that they, they're supposed to fulfill certain duties and certain tasks because they are women specifically. And, and I think, um, so with girls, I think the impact of that pull of society that I spoke about is just infinitely, or not infinitely, but in, a, a great deal stronger and a great deal um, uh, heavier in terms of you know, pigeonholing them into how they should grow up to be and what they should do and what they can do and what they can't do. And so I think specifically that just really needed to be addressed. Um, and, and I think we are addressing it today. Um, interestingly enough, I wrote this book in October of 2017. 
all that sexual misconduct stuff started hitting the airs and two months later, and I started to think about the people that were, were, were reporting that stuff and winding back in time to when they were younger. And, and you know, it was, it was something that, that, you know, you could have predicted if you just looked back at history. And so I think that all that news there really uh, magnified kind of what, what people think women are supposed to be in society. And um, unfortunately for the human race, it's like tying your one hand behind your back because, um, you know, it, as a gender, it's, it's um, every bit as capable as the other gender, and they're just not, have not historically been allowed to um, fully manifest their, their capabilities. And I think another thing, just uh, in terms of what you said about men, the, in, in your book obviously is really timely, but men were given, if you go back, as you say, and look at the history of these men, they were given permission to behave that way towards women. Society actually, I think, gives them or has given them that per- kind of permission to re- relate to women in that way. Yeah, it did. It had almost, um, at the same time, told women, um, you, you deserve this. <laughs> you know, um, th- this is just how it is for you. Um, and, and so I think, I think, you know, not, not getting anybody off the hook, you know, everybody has to kind of um, deal with the things they've done. But rolling back in time, you're right. At, at the time that they were being war- uh, raised and their ideas and beliefs were being set in them by the society, they grew up just exactly how, how um, they were told to or taught to. And so now, that's, that's a big deal. Also, now we're talking, you're the dad, and you have, and obviously this is the focus of the book, a father's impact on his daughters, which is different than a mother's impact. So what would you say would be the difference between father and daughter relationship as opposed to mother-mother uh, impacting the, the values of, you know, you don't want a happy daughter, a successful daughter, one who takes responsibility for herself, which you talk about. Uh, so give us father-daughter. What's unique about that kind of a relationship? Yeah, so I, I guess first, before I, before I completely answer that, I want to say that because, um, you know, there's lots of single moms and lots of single dads, and, and, and I don't think in either case they're disadvantaged. Um, and so in the case of being single as a dad, you know, I, I have to learn about um, doing certain things that, that um, I didn't even grow up familiar with because I'm, I'm male. So, you know, as, as girls transition into uh, women, and um, menstrual cycles and things like that. There's a whole area there, but that's just that's just knowledge uh, about about the gender's needs specifically. So I don't think others, uh, you know, raising their children with a hand behind their back if they if they are single. Um, and moms have been doing it excellently for 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 many many years. But um, you know, I think there's there's an interesting unique relationship that does exist um, between a father and his daughter simply because. Um, you know, the father's male and the daughter's female. And so it allows for some really, if it's an insightful parent, some really um, insightful perspective about um, raising, your, raising your children with maybe a greater awareness of, of kind of that male uh, influence in society and what males think as they, they grow up too. Um, and so it, it really gives, a, gives me a chance to be very insightful about what to teach them as they grow older um, and about that self-power and to know the influences from a male perspective that, that I, can, I can teach in a way that they get um, and understand. So I think that, that is, is, um, just, just makes that relationship between father and daughter very, very, very special. And I, I, um, and I'm, and I know the same thing can happen with a mother and a son. I grew up in a family of four boys, but my relationship with my dad also was, was very, very close. So... Um, Anyway, I, I just think it, the perspective of, of male-female um, gives us a chance to really have some special insight. So you're the first male they have contact with, so you are the role model for what men are all about. Uh, do you think that also father-daughter kind of helps? I mean, mother-mother is fraught with a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of issues, but maybe you eliminate some of the competitive edge that mother-daughters have that you don't have to necessarily deal with in a positive way because it kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're different in, in a positive way. So you don't have that kind of same kind of competition that mother-daughters have. You know, that's interesting you say, say that because um, I didn't grow up with an awareness of that competition, but, but I surely have seen it in, in siblings, um, sisters, um, for example. So, so I can only assume that there is that kind of competition, that female competition, even straight up through, to the mom, mom and daughter. Um, 
I, I'm blessed that my daughters are spaced out so much, 20 today, 20, 15, and 7, um, that they're like uh, layers in a canyon wall, very separate, but they, they make up the canyon wall together. So, so um, I'm fortunate to not even have seen that competition between them because they're never really in the same phase. But, um, but that is interesting that you brought that up, and I'm sure that is, um, is an advantage is that we just don't compete for, for things that may occur between a mother and her, her daughter. Well, you talk about your daughters being your greatest teachers, so and you just mentioned how old they are. Um, so how each one of them, and obviously each one unique, being very different, raising these three girls who aren't close together in age, how are they... Th- each one of them, maybe take each one of them separately. How have they been your greatest teachers? Yeah, so first of all, um, you know, parents tend to think, um, that, you know, I'm, I'm a parent, I'm, I know it all, but in truth, we never became a parent until that first child was born. And we, we <laughs> you know, so on that journey right there, it, it begins the situations that, are, that are, we encounter of what we need to teach our children. So we're not prepared for it anymore to be a parent than a child has to be a child. Um, and so it's a journey that we go on together. Um, in my case, um, probably the, the very greatest thing I learned uh, with my first daughter, um, and, and I tell the story in my book, and I remember when she was born, and, and I just kind of viewed her as this blob that was helpless and independent. And, uh, you know, but she could do all kinds of things, you know, pooped and peed and cried in her own language to tell me whether she was sick, hungry, cold, whatever that may have, may have been. But, um, but then a couple of weeks later, um, I, w- I was watching her, and she wasn't even aware of it, and, and she cracked this smile, and, I, and it, it floored me. It, it smiled and chuckled, and I'm like, well, what is that for, you know? <laughs> How does she know to do that? And so this was not a learned behavior. This is something she knew, and I, I kind of think that she probably would have done it um, on day one if, sh- if she didn't have to go through the shock of, of dwelling in water and suddenly living in air and, and, and you know. But a couple of weeks later... You know, comfort set in. I'm, I'm sure my needs are met now, and so she really expressed the meaning and purpose of life. And um, it, it just it just struck me in the most profound ways because I, I traveled a lot back in those times. So I, I began to contrast the, the dispositions and the countenance and the attitudes of adults in their playgrounds, like airports and malls. And then, as my my daughter started to grow older, um, on the playground of her. Of, in her sphere, um, a very different attitude. You know, these children were wanting to get along, be happy. They weren't, they weren't so concerned about uh, what others think. They weren't getting even. They weren't being rude. And I started to con- contrast those two things, and I said, there's something wrong here. Life starts out so wonderful uh, with the attitude uh, and, and a zest for living and a zest to be happy. And then look at all these people that are my age, including me, and we just look different, and we're not happy anymore. And so... Um, the greatest lessons they taught me as they, they grew older um, was what, what, what happens from that, you know, as we're born on fire for life and we end up miserable for life, you know, what, what, why does that happen? And so they taught me really seven big keys that I, that I um, sl- slowly learned, that, and, and that is the subject of my book, uh, which causes us to drift away. And it, it really all comes down to some of the things we've already talked about. And, and uh, that's displacing the belief in yourself and externalizing it to, to other things. And, and your, your identity uh, changes and you start to hold on to the past and past things and start to, start to, start to carry that stuff around with you like baggage. And so, um, so these lessons really, they, they taught me because even as they grew older, I began to see the, the, those influences start to take root in them. And so um, I, I wrote about it and the greatest thing they taught me was that that life is supposed to be happy and we're supposed to supposed to maintain that happiness and even expand it and we don't and so um that's the greatest thing they taught me uh, and and so as they grew older we have um junior high school is what it was called in my day high school etc uh, you know it really begins to intensify during those ages and and they taught me really how to how to work them through situations how to how to think about, um, you know, the clothes they wear and what it conveys, you know, and really understand um, the story behind the things I'm saying. And, and I listened to one of your shows about uh, storytelling. I think it's Matthew. Um, and, and that's a great way to communicate to children. So I, I, I told them stories back which, which expressed what they taught me. And, and um, you know, and, and each daughter is different in their personality, 
but the um, and so the way I communicate certain lessons to each one is different. Um, I have to take my own unique approach. I'm I'm not their dad. I'm her dad, and I'm her dad, and I'm her dad, and they all demand this very unique um, experience of me as their father. Same lessons uh, delivered in a different manner. Yeah, and I'm taking you back to middle school because I think uh, I think you're right. I think that's sort of maybe when the real world starts to impact in a way that, especially for girls going through puberty and sexuality and drugs and alcohol and all those kinds of things come into play. I mean, they're always going to be there. And so, you know, when you talk about the goal uh, is is happiness and how we achieve that, but but you can't always be happy, even if you have the seven keys to happiness, right? I mean, it, it, as we grow, we we live there for a long time, <laughs> and there's always stuff happening to us. So, how do you kind of maintain that balance? That that you know, once maybe you you don't just sort of I don't think achieve these seven keys to happiness, and then everything's going to be great. Um, yeah, that, it, that's true. Yeah, it's an ongoing problem. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, no, go ahead. When, when I think about happiness, um, maybe it's not so much a how do I feel at this moment happy and the next moment I don't, but it's more of a life kind of global, uh, ha- have a happy life. Um, definitely the, the ebbs and flows of life, the ups and downs. Um, in fact, that's a b- big piece of my teaching too is that, that those times when you're not happy um, are, are opportunities for expansion and, and learning and insight, and we gain we gain from those um, a lot. So, um, understanding these keys, and then understanding when we're kind of out of sync with life and we're not feeling very good, what you at least have is um, you know the way back home, you know the way back, and it allows these messages and lessons to become even more reinforced as you see. Um, what, what, as they learn and think about whatever event happened that, that um, they're experiencing that, that's causing the unhappiness that they think is. Um, and it allows them to really take the power back to say, oh, you know, okay, I, I know how to get back home um, because of these lessons. Do you A think, John, is... I'm sorry, go ahead. I want to ask you just one about, like, each one of your daughters. Did um, they pres- Each one of them, as you've said, present different kinds of challenges. Um, are there any one of your daughters that was more challenging than the other, just given your own personalities? You know, you talk about obviously the relationship between the two of you is key, is important. Sometimes you love all your children the same, but getting along with them is not always the same. It's just because of personality differences. Like, how did that impact on this whole journey? Yeah, so none of my daughters have uh, been problematic in, in, in where I could say, boy, this one really was, was a challenge, but they've, they've been very different. One of, one of my daughters, my middle one, is um, definitely um, less vocal, less uh, willing to talk about her feelings, etc. And so, you know, I had to really create some um, different ways for us to talk uh, and for us to uh, share together and, and um, experience things. And, and what I've learned with her is, you know, if, if she and I talk for 10 minutes about something in a, you know, in a very simple way, um, she, will, she will leave feeling like she and her dad have had this very meaningful, long um, communication, and it, it profoundly impacts her. Um, and so my older daughter may require... Um, longer kind of interactions and, and, and a different approach. So it, it really just has to be sensitive to the way they receive information and the way they best, um, best take it in. And so, so it could be, you know, creative experiences with one. It could be sitting and watching a movie with the other, um, riding a bike or taking a walk with one. And, um, and my little one, maybe it's just interactions and doing things together and, you know, doing art together. She loves to do art, writing stories together. And so it's not so much um, about uh, what I'm saying, because that's very consistent to all of them, but but how it's done just really has to be in a manner that that child will receive it. Like Yeah, I think that's a critical, really important point. I think that the message may be the same, but the way you impart that message may be very different depending on your relationship with your daughter and their own personalities. I mean, I think that's key something that maybe parents aren't always aware of. They tend to want to do the same thing in the same way with each one of their, in this case, daughters, and it doesn't work. Yeah, um, yeah <laughs> you're right. Um, well, you have a 25-year-old. Exactly right. Yeah, 25, which is 
very, you know, which is a grown-up now. So let's. can we talk about all of this in terms of your 25-year-old daughter? Because she's a mature person. She's an adult now. So yeah, actually, she's 20. 20 I'm sorry. If it, oh. Said, yeah, okay. she's 20. 20. Okay, well, we have, she's almost, she is an, almost 21, right? Oh, yeah. Um, definitely an so adult. You've, um, you've <laughs> had this journey, definitely an adult. Okay, where is she now? Is she in college? What's she doing? You know, how has all of this, you know, her journey uh, in, in light of the book and what you've written, how does that all fit together? Is she, where is she right now? Emotionally college, and, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, she's in college. Um, you know, and she, you know, sometimes um, she knows all, all of the things we're talking about here, but she sometimes struggles with, with it and is probably a little rebellious sometimes with, with um, the thinking. And, and as a parent, what, what, I, what I have to do is realize that as they get older, um, and, and she, she's in college, but she lives upstairs still. She's here, but she's very independent, has her own job drives herself to and from school and work, et cetera. And so she really, um, I, I, as a parent, I really have to know when I kind of start taking off the parental, um, you know, restraints, I guess, in a sense. Um, I, was, I was actually thinking about this the other day that my uh, middle daughter, who had stayed home two days from school because she was not feeling well, suddenly uh, the next day wanted to go see a soccer game and it was raining outside. And <laughs> so, um, you know, I had to say, listen, um, you know, you were, you were sick for two days. Uh, I, if you choose to do that, you know, you're, you can do that. Um, but, but um, you know, I want you to know that, that keep in mind wh- where you just came from and how you were feeling. If that was my youngest daughter, I wouldn't even say give her the possibility to go. My oldest daughter doesn't even ask, right, because she can go. And so as a parent... I have to start knowing when to give them more control uh, of decisions and, and let them make their own choices and suffer the consequences. That's probably one of the hardest things to do as a dad is to let them make mistakes um, when, when, you, when you know it's a great possibility that, that something not good is going to come from it. That's probably the hardest thing as a father. Um, it pro- maybe it's hard for every parent, but it's definitely a hard thing for me um, is to know when to kind of pull back those reins and, and let, them, let them make mistakes. And and you kind of have to evaluate what the consequences of each one of those mistakes are. I mean, you don't want them to be doing, taking opioids, for instance, and and let them learn that lesson. But, you know, it sort of goes down. It doesn't mean that it has to be that extreme, right? And like deciding what, you know, where you draw the line is, I think I agree with you, very difficult. So you're always transitioning. They're transitioning. You're transitioning. The relationship changes. Uh, and it's interesting because you have three girls who are all at very different stages. You know, it's not like they're a year apart and they're all kind of doing the same stuff at the same time. So you're sort of engaged in all these different areas. Um, what would you say the most, I mean, with girls and just maybe going on to a different topic, but this whole issue, uh, which is in the news and the Me Too movement and girls being sexualized and all of this, um, it's just a huge topic today, and it seems like it's it's getting well. It has maybe up until this point, it getting worse and worse. I mean, the, the expectations for girls being sexual and looking good, and uh, all you know, all of these sort of values that that we don't necessarily want to impart to them. How do you handle that? Especially, when you've got a twenty-year-old who's in college. Um, I think that. That's really an immediate kind of issue right now with women, with young girls. Um, how are you handling that? Yeah, you know, this, this goes back to some of the conversations we had earlier about um, kind of what, what, what the expectation is and what you're taught. And I do think it's, it's, there's more noise about it, but I'm not necessarily sure if I believe it's getting worse or just getting more, more um, illumination. Um, I remember when my oldest daughter was back of around 12, 11, and um, these sweatpants came out that um, girls started wearing that had a big word right across the butt. could have been a color that's kind of between red and white. could have been, you know, some word huge right across of these very tight-fitting little sweats. And all these girls started wearing them then, and she asked me, hey, can I get a pair of those? And I, and I, I said, uh, absolutely not. <laughs> Um, and, but I didn't stop there. Um, that led us to have conversations about what, what do we convey to the world 
um, about us, right? So do you want people to know you, or do you want people to look at your butt and maybe say something about your butt, right? And so, um, you know, it didn't stop with a yes or no. Um, that's, a, that's a failed method of teaching, and as soon as the child is out on their own, they're going to go explore, why did that person tell me, why did dad tell me no? I'm going to go figure out why that's a bad thing to do, right? And so they've not grown up with that, um, that kind of, you know, I'm a sexual object, uh, that I, that, and that's my identity. Uh, so th- that was just a, a funny story from, from those years, but now, you know, she has that very solid within her. She's not interested in, in exploring that. And it's kind of a kind of a turnoff for her to see it. I think um, you know, with with this generation growing up, you know, we need to think about the girls that are, or you know, junior high, elementary school, and 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 we can make a difference in the future. Today, um, it's it's difficult because we're we're seeing the children that grew up in a different time, and so we have to just deal with that as a society and keep keep uh, hopefully impact some change as much as we can today. But it's, it's not going to be easy. I mean, these transitions of any kind, racism, you name it, these are not easy transitions that just have to be dealt with in the here and now and in the raising of the youngest ones to have a different set of values. So if I you love had one seeing, word, we have um, about three minutes left. So I just, if you had one word to describe you as a parent raising a happy daughter, what would you say a parent needs to do? What would be the one word on an ongoing basis? What would the parent need to be, have to do? What, what? Is there one word that would describe it? Maybe a hyphenated word. Um, um, uh, self-reliance, self-trust, um, self-validation, uh, self. Self is the one word, self. Um, you know, by definition, that, that really applies a self that's you alone, inward, uh, not inward in personality, but that, that's your value. That's where it all starts and your thoughts. Um, the minute you take that and give that away, um, that, that's when all of this other stuff manifests. And so the problem, I think, that we are, we're talking about, all the problems, really comes to, uh, can be boiled down to taking the self and giving it away to, to something else to, 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 be, to define who you are. Uh, great, great ending to the show. Um, I hate to say goodbye. This was a really good, good interview, John. And uh, I want to mention the book again, A Dad's Fun Guide to Raising Happy Daughters. You can buy it, I assume, online, bookstores everywhere. But also, is there a website that we can go to to get more information about the book and about you? Absolutely. My, my uh, blog website is dadsraisingdaughters.com. All one word. And okay. you can read about things I'm doing there, speaking, uh, teaching, and stuff like that. And you can also find the book there um, as well. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Well, this was a lot of fun, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvin Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Melissa Glasser, director of the Newtown Recovery and Resiliency Team and author of Healing a Community, Lessons for Recovery After Large-Scale Trauma. Mass shootings are so frequent in the United States that their aftermaths follow a mostly predictable predictable pattern for the public at large. But nothing could be further from the truth in the impacted community, where in addition to the grief-stricken victims, friends, and families, everyone from first responders and doctors to local clergy and area leaders are thrown into uncharted territory. Melissa Glasser offers a practical and much-needed guide for local officials, emergency workers, mental health professionals, and anyone else dealing with the daunting task of supporting and healing a community after tragedy and trauma. She's a licensed professional counselor who's been providing clinical psychotherapy services for the past 28 years. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Hi. Thank you for having me. Great having you on the show today. Um you know, to me, it's so sad that we have to be, or a, a tragedy in and of itself, that we have to be talking about this. And this is an ongoing occurrence. Um, yeah. And that now we have to have, after the fact, we have to have all of these policies and procedures in, in place. Um, when did you, I, I guess my first question is, when did you first come in, well, were you first involved with the, as, well, you're the director of the Newtown Recovery and Resilience Team? How did that come about? Yeah, so I'm the, the former director. That um, oh. Recovery and Resiliency Team um, disbanded um, after our work ended. Um, but I, I was brought in to um, be in charge of all the community recovery work um, about 18 months after the tragic event after the school shooting. And um, that was because the grant, the town was awarded um, a large grant from the federal government. And um, they had now gone through the, what we call the crisis stage of triaging and trying to put the pieces back together. And now they were, you know, experiencing this consequence phase of the tragedy, which was, you know, trying to assess and provide services for the entire community um, based on the ongoing impact of the trauma. Melissa, what was so unique about this? I mean, we had traumas before that, and we had mass shootings, and we had all of those kinds of things, and terrorist attacks. But somehow, Sandy Hook just kind of got to us, I think, as, as, as a community, as, as a, a nation. Uh, there, there was kind of a, a beginning of a very different, impact that this had on us as a, as a country, I think. Yeah, well, I think in comparison to where we are right now, you know, when I started documenting our work as a format or guideline for other communities, I had no idea, you know, how many of these tragic events were going to um, occur across our, our nation. Um, so at the time of the Sandy Hook shooting, um, I, I, we weren't hearing about these incidents and certainly um, weren't hearing about um, shootings to children in schools. Um, there certainly um, were incidents where, you know, uh, communities were um, impacted and suffering and, and uh, working through what they needed to, but it was few and far between. I think what made this different was, um, you know, most of the victims were young children and um, in the safety of their own school and the perpetrator, the, the, the shooter was somebody that lived in town, um, uh, a young adult 
that um, many people had um, come across um, through the years and had eyes on, um, but were still able, unfortunately, to, uh, to, to carry this out. I think one of the things is, you know, maybe up until that point, even a little bit after, people would always say, well, we couldn't believe that this could happen in our town. Um, you know, right. this is not the kind of place. We're a safe, small town. But obviously, that's not true. Now we know it can happen. This tragedy can happen anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. And it is. And it continues. And hence, your work is really important, I guess, maybe more critical than you ever thought it would be, I would assume. Um, because there's yeah, a whole lot is, of issues. Right. Yeah. Let's start with something. I, I mean, think we're, this is, we're now living. Yeah. I think we're now living at a time where, you know, most people feel that there is no um, real trust in being safe in a mall, in a movie theater, in a school, in a synagogue or a church. Um, you know, we, we now have um, taken on this uh, sense of it could happen anywhere at any time. So, unfortunately, yeah. And given that, there are ramifications, obviously, that have to be dealt with, and this is what you've been doing, or that you you did, um, and sort of, I guess, I don't know what you would call it, the guidelines for when it happens again. I don't even like to say that, but um, let's talk about the psychological and the emotional needs of a community after a mass shooting. Yeah, when I stepped into the role, I um, really um, was pretty naive about the what we ended up calling kind of that ripple effect of how many people were so highly impacted. So not just uh, the obvious um, immediate victims, families that had lost a loved one, or um, the individuals that were on site at the time of the event. But, you know, the... Uh, the grandparents and the soccer coaches and the bus drivers and the municipal staff in town, um, the, the spouses of the first responders, um, you know, the uh, ripples were very far reaching. So one of the things I talk about is when you go into this work, it's so important to um, start off with really assessing um, who is your community, who, who is in need, and then, you know, what are the gaps in services that you need to step in and um, pull together? You know, what are the resources, and h- how do you develop a resource bank and collaborate with um, providers that are, you know, already in place? And how does that fit into no- because Yeah, go ahead. We had no roadmap, um, so there was very little written about this kind of work. Um, There was, uh, you know, very few people that were feeling like they had expertise in uh, managing, assessing uh, tragedy at this magnitude. So that's what this book is all about. You know, I felt when we were completing our work that I didn't want, as we... Uh, stepped away. I didn't want all of these lessons um, and the model that we developed for recovery to be lost. And so given that, I mean, you're talking about, you know, assessing and and, uh, assessing what the emotional and psychological damages are and what you need to do. You also have to have some kind of financial backing or support to be able to do these kinds of things. Not all the communities necessarily where these things happen have that. Um, mm-hmm. how do you, I mean, that must be one of the elements as well. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I have a whole chapter in the book on, uh, the money involved in, uh, in doing this kind of work and it is, um, expensive. Most communities don't budget, you know, especially small communities don't budget for a tragedy like this, understandably. Um, you know, we received a grant from the federal government. It was a $7 million grant to cover uh, programming and operating costs. But none of that money was earmarked for individual recovery. Um, in Sandy Hook, there was a lot of donations that came flooding in. And uh, it, those that, that was the pot of money that we used to help individuals in their uh, recovery needs. But even that, 
is very complicated. You know, it takes, uh, you have to ask a lot of questions and build a system around managing the money, you know, and who's going to manage it and how are the decisions going to be made and what are best practices that can be paid for and how will needs be assessed um, and documented. Uh, will there be caps? You know, will you know, people be required to use their insurance before tapping into the funds? All, all of those kinds of questions need to be asked. Um, so uh, that is a big piece of it. And then yeah, so a lot of are... our programming, our large-scale programming, um, involved uh, a great deal of money that uh, we didn't have, and I had to kind of pound the pavement and find the funds for. For instance, our first responder project was a year-long project that was extremely expensive, and I, um, I had to, you know, find donations from other organizations and individuals to cover that. Melissa, each community is different, as you're describing it, um, from a lot of different standpoints. What's the difference between, say, the aftermath of a school shooting as opposed to the aftermath of a, uh, a shooting that happens in a nightclub or at a concert? Um, like, you know, are, are there differences? Are there differences in the way you handle the situation? Well, I, I think in terms of uh, individual impact, you know, I talk a lot about um, complicated grief, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and, you know, high levels of really integrated trauma. And it, it, those occur for individuals um, on, you know, with any of the uh, examples that you just gave. But it is a little bit different than maybe communities that um, have a natural disaster event. You know, when somebody... Um, is a witness to an act um, that involves death um, in a very aggressive and violent way and unexpected way. You know, one minute you feel you're safe and you don't have any worries, and the next minute your world comes crashing down on you and you have no control um, and, uh, you know, are are pretty helpless. Um, It really contributes to this sense of distrust and um, fear going forward, and it changes your whole perspective on the world and on life. So those are the issues uh, that uh, recovery workers are dealing with um, in these kinds of situations. Okay, so that happens when there is this kind of, you know, when you have something like these tragic murders is what they are, which is different than a natural disaster. Uh, where Correct. I guess there isn't that feeling of, I, I don't know, I'm just sort of interjecting, but the, the evilness, the, the, those kind, the, just a whole different, I think, attitude towards the whole thing, um, even yeah. though everybody's in yeah, survival mode, but in a very different way. What about, and this is something that um, I'm always interested in, what about the media coverage? How do you, I mean, do, let's talk about that. Um, how do communities deal with the media? Because they're ready to jump in, let's face it, and they've got a story, and it's a big story, and it runs 24-7 usually, at least for a few days or a week after the tragedy. Um, so what, what's the impact of the media on the community, and how should communities handle the media? Yeah, so th- that was a big phenomena in Sandy Hook, you know, um, and it wasn't just for days. It was literally for weeks, um, months after the tragedy, you know, understandably, um, there's interest, there's a lot of stories um, the world wants to know, but um, really in this small town of 27,000 people, there were, you know, cameras and lights um, on Main Street and streets were blocked off and, you know, um, news vans uh, were planted there for days on end. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it got to the point where not only was it, um, a bit of an assault on the community, but uh, it was re-triggering. So, you know, when somebody is, you know, working so hard at trying to find a place to put their feelings and figure out, you know, how to be there for others or move on, and uh, they, they can't drive down their street because the news cameras are there, or they're stopped um, in town. And uh, with somebody, you know, that's asking for their story, um, it, it, it's an element of uh, not really being able to ever get grounded and settled and move forward. So that was a big issue 
uh, in Sandy Hook. I think we've learned a little bit since then, but often I still see, when I, I turn on the news after one of these tragedies, I see these victims or victim families, you know, um, thrust into the camera lens. And I'm always thinking, you know, it's too soon and they need space. And you're making them feel like they need to tell their story now when, in fact, they probably don't and it may not really be value added at this time. So, so we have to, I guess, is concern. yeah, I would, I, I always see, you know, when I see that uh, a person in the media will ask a family, a mother or a father, how do you feel after your son or daughter has been killed is just so inappropriate. I mean, I'm a social worker. Yeah. It's like something that why would you ask someone like that? a question like that. And then the next piece is why would they allow the media to, uh, to, to ask to interview them? They have to, I guess maybe you said you have to really be aware. You have to be able to say no, I guess you have to be able to step away from it and be as, as the person who was involved in the tragedy. Yeah. And you know, these families are so conflicted and confused and torn to pieces. And, you know, some of them are feeling like, well, I, I need to honor my, my child that's lost or my loved one and tell their story. And, uh, you know, there's nobody advocating saying there's plenty of time for that. You know, you don't need to do that right now. And then sometimes after telling their story, you know, uh, some individuals feel like they were exposed in the wrong way or it didn't come across the way they wanted and um, they can't take it back. Or now it has exposed themselves in, in a way that, they're not comfortable with or the rest of their family. So it, it is an issue. But we know, you know, um, America wants to know, the world wants to know the details of how a tragedy like this could ever have happened. So, Unfortunately, I think we've had a lot of experience since, um, since Newtown uh, and beginning to understand how it happens, um, which and, and continues to happen. People around, as you say, everybody does want to know, and many people want to know how they can help. And most people don't know how to do that. And when these tragedies happen and it's not in their community and they do want to help, what do they do? Yeah, I I think, you know, people have to understand that um, however well-meaning and well-intentioned, you know, these efforts are, it's really important to um, uh, take Take time, not feel like you uh, need to flood everything, you know, in the moment or the the weeks right after. So, you know, Sandy Hook was flooded with um, letters and cards and teddy bears and blankets and, you know, um, all kinds of supplies. But to the point where, you know, it was extremely overwhelming for the post office to manage. Um, There were so many items that were sent to town, there was nowhere to store them, and they had to, you know, um, rent a storage facility, um, and then, you know, didn't even know what to do with all the items, because, again, as well-meaning as people are, it's not necessarily, when, when a town is in the throes of grief and trauma, it's not necessarily the items um, that they need to, to make a difference. So there are so practical they, aspects to the whole thing. Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. like you said, you know, sending all of these gifts and teddy bears and those kinds of things may be nice, but they're really not nice. It's not helpful. The community can't handle it. The post office can't handle it. There have to be other ways. I assume sending money is a good way uh, to do that, um, which would be helpful. Um, yes. Yeah. What? Because yes. I'm no, always, it, you know, it's, yeah, when they do these, the, the, the lighting the candles and everybody's sorry and condolences, it all just seems so... Uh, maybe this gets down to my attitudes toward gun control. Maybe, let's talk about really why this is happening and all of the, the I mean, you ha- you want to respect people and what happened, but sometimes I think that's overdone. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, in Newtown, the town did a really nice job of coming together and having vigils or, uh, you know, services in their community church or synagogue, um, and that is important. But um, then you get to that place, you know, a year out, two years out, three years out, where everyone's in a different place. Some people uh, think that having a vigil like that is still um, 
helpful and it honors those that are gone. And some people feel like, you know, it, it, it's time to move beyond that. So um, even that can be tricky. But, yeah, you know, lots of people flooded into town, well-meaning, you know, wanting to be there for a vigil, wanting to uh, be part of the emotion of the event. I think oftentimes, though, they're doing that for themselves. You know, that, that isn't necessarily um, what some of these uh, really impacted families need. Well, that gets back to your book. That's why we need the book. We need the guidelines that you've had this experience and that you can provide for people so they understand the impact of what they're doing, even though they want to be helpful, but there are ways that are helpful and there are ways that are not helpful to the actual community or to the victims of the tragedy. Um, In describing your, you, you oversaw the recovery and resilience team. Okay, so what, what's the difference between recovery and resilience? Yeah, so my definition uh, of the two is, you know, recovery is when, you know, each individual is really um, figuring out the, the treatments and strategies that they need to get grounded and to resume, you know, some functioning, some healthy functioning in their life again. Um, and that's a process. And, you know, I I talk about, you know, what we found were best practice models for that and how we layered treatments to get people to a a better place. Resilience is really kind of that end goal, um, almost like uh, post-traumatic growth. Resilience is when somebody um, has really embodied a sense of recovery and health and wellness in their life to the point where um, they can see beyond the tragedy and see what going through this, um, where it has brought them, and also that they're so good at it that they can lend a hand to their neighbor now, or you know they can talk the talk and help others. Melissa, it's been great having you on the show today. I uh, the book I recommend to listeners. Uh, Melissa Glasser, is it Glasser or Glazer? I've been saying it's Glazer. That's fine. Glazer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. Melissa Glazer. And you can buy her book online, bookstores everywhere. The title of the book is Healing a Community, Lessons for Recovery After Large-Scale Trauma. So where, besides your book, I assume you have a website and maybe other resources that we can go to for more information, obviously, about you and uh, maybe about other resources as well. Yes. Uh, I have a website, Melissa Glazer. Dot com and uh, also Central Recovery Press, uh, the publisher of the book. Um, uh, you can find information on their website. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Okay. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 